Hello, and thanks for joining me for another episode of the History of Christianity. I'm Bertie Pearson. I'm the rector of Grace Episcopal Church in Georgetown, Texas, and I've also spent the better part of the last decade teaching church history at the Iona School for Ministry and occasionally at the Seminary of the Southwest. It's great to be with you. So I had an email from a listener called Maximilian, who lives in England, and he asked a question about the relationship between religion and science, the conflict between religion and science. And I think he was curious as to how this played out in the history of the church, how this was perceived in the early church. And long story short, it wasn't a conflict. So we have this romanticizing tendency to think that things as they are now have always been, or maybe if there was some recent change in the past, everything was exactly as it was until that change happened and now everything's better. But this idea that the church and science were on opposite poles um, in constant tension or constant argument up through the 20th century is really a fiction. The conflict is not between Christianity and science, or the Bible and science. The conflict is between an Enlightenment version of Christianity, which sees the human reason as the most powerful instrument in the universe capable of penetrating all mysteries. The conflict is between that and a version of science, which sees the human reason as the most powerful instrument in the universe capable of penetrating all mysteries. Both of these are pretty new understandings of the human reason, which people came up with a couple hundred years ago. So when people talk about the debate between science and religion, what they're often talking about is the debate over Darwin's theory of evolution, or maybe about the debates about geology that happened just prior to Darwin. And the assumption is that throughout the history of Christianity, people believed that the earth was like, you know, five or 6,000 years old, and that anything that questioned that threw into question the whole project of Christianity. In fact, this is not the case at all. So I'll talk a little bit about where this came from, if not the early church, how that's played out today, and then what the early church response to all of this would have been. So this idea that the world is 5,650 years old, this doesn't come from an early church theologian, this certainly doesn't come from the Bible, this really comes from a guy called James Usher. Usher was a 17th century Irish bishop, but he wasn't a traditionalist theologian. Instead, he was a great Enlightenment thinker. So he was an almost contemporary of Newton and was operating very much in the same world. And in fact, folks like Newton and Kepler also used Enlightenment tools to date the age of the creation. They were all trying to say, when exactly God said, let there be light. And for Usher, that was 4004 BC, October 22nd, sometime probably around 6.30 p.m. To us, that sounds crazy and bizarre, but to Usher, there was the sense that the humility that people had had before Scripture in previous ages, where they would come before Scripture like, they, like Job came before the whirlwind and just kind of awe of the Word of God, was maybe a little misguided that the human intellect, the human reason, was so powerful, there was no mystery in Scripture that couldn't be just figured out if you thought about it long enough. And so for Usher, the narrative of Genesis was not this kind of grand, sweeping, epic narrative about the origin of the cosmos. It was basically a history textbook, 
or a physics textbook or a biology textbook. And all you had to do was really pay attention to the details, do the math, and you can get the answers. This is the same attitude that led Newton to sit down, do the math, and get the answers of the physical world. And he changed everything. It was phenomenal. It was stupendous. It was astonishing that just half a generation after Usher, this guy Newton came along and figured out all the principles by which the physical world works, or at least seemed to before quantum physics. And the Enlightenment had this sense that, like, if you could do that, if you could figure out the entire physical world over the course of like a couple of decades, well, things like religion, ethics, love, we were going to figure those things out by like next Wednesday. Those are not big questions at all. And so Usher publishes this in this very heady academic book with this super long title, Annals of the Old Testament, deduced from the first origins of the world, the Chronicle of Asiatic and Egyptian matters together produced from the beginning of historical time up until the beginning of Maccabees. Not the kind of title you would pick for a popular bestseller. He publishes this obscure academic book, and some other Enlightenment theologians, philosophers, physicists are like, hmm, chin-scratching, how fascinating, our usher's done it, why, he's dated the origin of the world. But it's the kind of thing that might get a footnote in some other academic papers if it happened today, but would not necessarily be this like huge revolution. But this is the age of annotation, of footnotes and endnotes, of explanatory headings and closing paragraphs. And so in 1701, you get this new annotated Bible published. The 1701, it's sometimes called the Bishop Lloyd Bible. And this 1701 annotated Bible had Usher's chronology as an annotation. So you open your Bible, first page, Genesis, let there be light, footnote, go down to the bottom, and it says 4004 BC. And you're like, okay, well, God created the world in 4004 BC. I know it because it's right there in black and white in the Bible. And anyone reading this would know, okay, it's a footnote. It's not actually part of the text. This hasn't been in the Bible for the past 1,700 years of Christianity. But if you're just reading along as an average reader, you assume that someone with a great deal of authority stuck that number in, and it must be true. And so Usher's chronology is, in a sense, given the weight of biblical fact. And if this had just happened in this one Bishop Lloyd Bible, who knows how many copies were printed, it probably still wouldn't have changed the world. However, those annotations made it into a series of other Bibles, thousands of other editions of Bibles that blanketed the English-speaking world. In America, probably the most popular Protestant annotated Bible included many of the annotations from this Bishop Lloyd Bible. And so this chronology became normative in lots and lots of corners of American Protestantism, such that in the 1840s, 1850s, 1860s, when all these things about Darwin's theory were being published in newspapers, people started to freak out. Because what Darwin was saying, if it was true, invalidated the Bible. Of course, it doesn't actually invalidate the Bible. It invalidates this one footnote that's added over a thousand and a half years after the events narrated in the Bible took place. But regardless, people were offended and upset. And so, in the 1840s, 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, you get more and more American clergy from various denominations, Baptists, Presbyterians, Methodists, and they're, they're feeling frustrated because they feel like their denominations are not stepping up 
to challenge Darwin. In fact, their denominations are kind of saying, actually, that we don't really see a big conflict here. It's just a footnote, and it was wrong. And fundamentalist Christians want to say, no, but humanity is made in the image and likeness of God. If humanity is evolved from other primate species, that can't be the case. And the mainline churches are saying, why not? Why can't God work through evolution? Why can't there be this continual growth towards God and humanity? Isn't that a kind of beautiful and elegant way for God to create? And the fundamentalists say, no, it's not. It's not at all. Another piece of what's at play here is the Enlightenment understanding of the human. That, as the Enlightenment motto goes in old school sexist language, man is the measure of all things. And so, humanity is really the kind of apex of creation. Humanity are the holders of reason, this most amazing, miraculous, wonderful thing that can solve all mysteries. And so, if we are actually just another evolved animal species, doesn't that kind of decrease our role in the universe? Are we not the masters of the universe and just one more thing in creation? And Christianity would actually say, yes, you are a part of God's creation. You yourself are not God. You are not the holder of the keys. You are not the one who knows everything. You are not the judge of the universe. You are not the measure of all things. You are a beloved creation created in God's image and likeness. So for a lot of these Christians, there was no conflict between the theory of evolution and adherence to a biblical faith. But for other Christians, this was not the case. And so these alienated pastors start meeting together for Bible studies. And so for the first time, you get the Methodist and the Presbyterian and the Baptist all coming together, kind of leaving their denominations behind and just getting together because they share the same sense of outrage and this, in a sense, common faith. This leads up to the 1890s, in which you get this real movement of pastors breaking away, declaring themselves fundamentalist pastors. They believe in the fundamentals of the Bible, like ushers dating, and they walk away from their denominations and form what are now called non-denominational churches. Most non-denominational theology ends up becoming Baptist theology, and to this day, a lot of non-denominational clergy will just study at Baptist seminaries, because that's, that's the kind of norm of the theology in that world. But regardless, it was that movement which had the problem with Darwin's theory of evolution. So, the other denominations what become called the main line instead of fundamentalist denominations, the other Presbyterians, the other Methodists, the other Lutherans, and then denominations that really didn't have much of a fundamentalist orientation at all, including my own, the Episcopal Church or Anglican Church, um, also the Roman Catholic Church, the Eastern Orthodox Church, to some extent the Lutheran Church. We just kind of kept on doing our own thing. So there came to be this narrative that Christianity and science were just two different worldviews that were utterly irreconcilable. But for the vast majority of Christians then, and the vast majority of Christians alive today, that is simply a myth. That is not true. That's an irrelevant analysis. Because the fundamentalist voice is vocal, but it's not the dominant voice in Christianity. It's not the dominant voice in numbers, and it's not certainly the, the kind of old-school traditional voice at all. It really comes from the ramifications of the Enlightenment. Okay, you might say, but doesn't the Bible present the world as this giant garden and there are only two people in it, and from those two people come 
all the people in the world, and then the whole world changes from being this beautiful garden to being the world we now know and love today. Isn't that totally irreconcilable with science? I mean, don't we actually see this process of evolution of humanity? Don't we see the world change, not not just be created as a garden, but actually change in the way sort of that we see in the first chapter of Genesis, in which there is a lot of water, and then the continents emerge, or Pangaea emerges, or whatever, and the continents break apart, and then we have um, stuff living in the water, and the stuff from the water comes out onto the dry land, and evolves on the dry land, and you get animals, and birds, and dinosaurs, and so forth. Not in that order, obviously, dinosaurs, then birds. Um and then eventually you get the evolution of humans. How can we reconcile this Genesis 1 account with a Genesis 2 account or reconcile the Genesis 2 account, the creation of Adam and Eve in the garden, with science? Seems impossible, right? Well, that's actually not what the Bible says. There's nowhere in the second account of Genesis that claims that the garden was the whole earth. In fact, it says the opposite. And there's nothing in Genesis that claims that Adam and Eve are the only human beings. It also claims the opposite. So if you actually read the second chapter of Genesis, you'll see that the garden is a paradise. This is a a loan word that Hebrew takes on, which means a walled garden. And you see rivers flowing from the garden, going to other lands. Clearly the garden is not the whole world. The garden is a specific place. And this garden is on top of a mountain. In ancient Near Eastern cosmology, when you have a garden, a walled garden, a paradise on top of a mountain, this is the definition of a temple. So Adam and Eve are placed in this one specific temple, this temple of Eden. And this is not a temple in the sense of the place where you go to church and hear a sermon or something like that. This is a temple not made with human hands. This is the meeting point of heaven and earth. This is the place where eternity and time, where God and creation, where heaven and earth come together, where heaven and earth are almost made one. Rather than being the only people in the world, Adam and Eve are meant to have dominion over the creation to rule and to serve the creation, and to extend the temple, the meeting point of heaven and earth, over the whole creation. So they are in this place where the presence of God brings about harmony and peace and goodness and love and joy, and their job is to spread that across the entire creation. And instead, they rebel against God. They refuse to participate in that work. How do we know they're not alone? Well, they fall. They have these children, Cain and Abel, and they procure wives for them. So where did these wives come from? When Cain kills Abel, God says, I'm going to send you away. And Cain says, don't send me out as an exile, for people will kill me. Who are these people that are going to kill him? So even within the logic of the story itself, Eden is not the whole creation. It is a specific place where heaven and earth meet, that God created within the creation. And Adam and Eve are not the only people. They are two extremely special people, created by God with a special mission to transform the world. Okay, you might be saying fair enough, but 
aren't we told that we are all descended from Adam? Isn't that a basic claim of the New Testament? It is. But if you read the work of the population geneticist David Reich, who teaches at Harvard, who I think has no dog in the Adam and Eve real or not fight, he actually says something really interesting. He says that this concept of genetic purity in various racial groups in humanity is a complete crazy myth that has nothing to do with the genetic reality. That in fact, there was so much mixing of the human gene pool um, from way back that if you can find an ancestor of enough antiquity, someone who is thousands and thousands of years old, who has one living descendant in the population it's likely that that person actually is the ancestor of all the living people in the population. So whether that is Ugg the caveman or whether that is Adam and Eve, that is in no way a demographic impossibility. It's actually a demographic likelihood if the people are old enough. So this idea that we are all descended from Adam is actually not a very unusual or impressive or crazy claim. None of this is to say that science dictates that one has to believe in the Old Testament or that that these things are proven by science or some silly phrase like that. But they are to say that in no way are they contradicted by science. So one can very much hold a strong biblical faith and can be completely comfortable with scientific hypotheses and operating in a scientific way in the world. So, back to the actual subject of this podcast, the early church. What did the early church have to say about all of this? Well, it's really interesting to read the fathers of the early church, the earliest Christian theologians, because when they're writing about the Old Testament, they write in a very different way than people in the Enlightenment and the 20th and 21st centuries have. For them, the Old Testament is very much not a science book, nor is it a history book. It is a revelation book. And every word, every sentence, every paragraph, every chapter, every book of the Bible, of the Old Testament, is centered on the revelation of God. And much of that revelation is specifically the revelation of God in Jesus Christ. In 2 Corinthians, St. Paul talks about the veil which lies over the Old Testament, which can only be lifted by Christ. So when we read the Old Testament without viewing Christ in the Old Testament, we are mystified by lots of things. Again, just to put this out there, this is the Christian perspective. Our brothers and sisters in Judaism would disagree with this vehemently, and this is where we just have to agree to disagree because we're two different religions that can still love each other and be best friends and marry each other and all those things. But we disagree on this point. So for early Christians, that veil, that veil of obscurity, of confusion, of what is this passage about, that is lifted by Christ. We see this over and over again, the phrase, Christ opened the scriptures to them in the New Testament. As the disciples are walking along towards Emmaus, Christ opens the scriptures. He shows that everything in the law and the prophets is about him. So, if you're reading the Old Testament through the eyes of the early church, preachers from the early church will talk about Christ's presence in the Old Testament over and over again. They will talk about Christ coming to Abraham and making promises. They will talk about Christ meeting Moses in the burning bush, Christ meeting Moses on Mount Sinai, and with his own finger drawing out 
the two copies of the law, the two tablets of the Ten Commandments. We see Christ wrestling with Jacob. It is Jesus. It is the Word of God. It is the pre-incarnate Word. It is God the Son that does all these things. And for Christians, the Old Testament is very much about Christ. If you're reading from an Enlightenment perspective, these books are about a set of historical facts, which it's very important to know. If you're reading from an early church perspective, that is just the basic level. That is the surface level. So, this idea that there really were a pair of people named Adam and Eve for the early church, sure, that's great, but that's not the point. So, if you read St. Paul and what he says about the importance of Adam and Eve, he will talk about the importance of Adam as prefiguration of Christ. Adam is the old Adam. Christ is the new Adam, and it's, un, it's impossible to understand the total recapitulation of humanity in Christ, the total transformation of human nature in Christ, without understanding the old Adam. That's, for Paul, that's the kind of essence of the story of the fall, the story of Adam and Eve, is that it informs you about the work of Christ. From the Enlightenment perspective, this is like a really thorough 23andMe. You know, you find out who your first ancestors were, what they did for a living, what their lives were like. But from the early church perspective, the fact that there were an Adam and Eve, that is not the whole point of the story. So for some early church theologians, they would say that a text has at least three levels of meaning. There's what they called the hylic level, the kind of material or fleshly level the psychic level, which doesn't mean you can read minds or bend spoons with your brain. It means the mental level and the pneumatic level, the spiritual level. So, some texts may just have a hylic, a literal level. Some texts may just have a psychic. Some texts may just have a spiritual level, but lots of texts have all three. So, the literal level does not necessarily mean literal fact, scientifically verifiable fact, historically observable fact. The literal level means what the author thought that he was doing when writing this. So, for the early church, and really for all Christianity, the Bible is written by humans who are inspired by the Holy Spirit. So, they might have thought that they were writing a pure history of the kings of Israel, as in First and Second Kings. But there are also psychic and, and pneumatic levels to that text. So, the writer may have just thought, okay, I'm writing down who this king was, who his mother was, when this battle happened, who the battle was with, and who won the battle. And yet, through that, we're seeing a vision of Christ. We're understanding the depth of our relationship with God. I've used this example before, I think, because it's such a great example. But in the story of the Battle of Jericho, you have this general who wages war on a city by crossing through a river and conquers the city. All right, well, that's happened probably a billion times in the history of the world. There have been lots of battles, lots of rivers of boundaries, lots of cities conquered. Why is that so interesting? So that's, that's the, um, the hylic, the literal level. The psychic level, the kind of mentally edifying level, might be something like Joshua arrives at this giant city. It is fortified, it is powerful, it is impenetrable, there is a river in front of it, and it's impossible. 
it's a suicide mission, nothing is going to go right. It's going to be completely impossible to storm the city. And yet, God commands him to do it, and he has faith. And so he says, if you're the one telling me to do this, then I'm going to do this. And so he has his priests charge right into the river, like they are, are going to drown in the river. They're carrying all this stuff, and they just go right into the river, and the river dries up on either side of them, and they pass by on dry ground. And then he has his priests march around the city. People are going to be throwing stuff at them. They're going to be dropping burning logs on their heads, and all they have to defend themselves are trumpets. And yet, this is what God has commanded, and so Joshua does it. So Joshua is faithful. He trusts God. And because he trusts God, because he trusts in God's path of life, all goes well. So that's that's the kind of mental level or psychic level. But then for the church, the important stuff, the really crucial stuff, the really deep stuff is the pneumatic level, the spiritual level. And so what does this story have to say on the spiritual level? So Joshua is the name of the general. In Hebrew, that name is Yeshua. If you transliterate that name, Yeshua, into Greek, what do you get? Jesus. You have a general whose name is actually Jesus, and he crosses through a river. And what's that river? It's the River Jordan. But not just anywhere on the River Jordan. This is literally the spot, according to modern Jewish people and modern Christian people, this is literally the spot where Jesus was baptized by John. So, if you go to the site of the baptism in the River Jordan in the Holy Land, it's both a Jewish shrine and a Christian shrine. Jewish, because this is where Joshua crossed, Christian, because this is where Christ was baptized. So, you have a general named Jesus crossing through the River Jordan where Christ is baptized at the exact spot where Christ is baptized, and he comes up to these hard, almost impenetrable walls, and he blows the horn of the gospel. Christ comes through baptism, through our baptism, to these big, thick, impenetrable walls that surround our hearts. These walls of fear, these walls of selfishness, these walls of old grudges, these walls of unending desire, and he blows the trumpet of the gospel. And these walls come a-tumbling down, and he rushes into our hearts to reign over our hearts as our king. In the same way, At the end of time, we'll hear the last trumpet, and everything which is not eternal will be shaken apart, will fall apart, and there will be space made for the new creation, the eternal creation, the eternal kingdom of God. So from the early Christian perspective, a human writer might be writing human history, just like any historian. A human writer might be writing a human love poem, just like any poet. A human writer might be writing a series of human sayings, of maxims, of just wisdom sayings, like any human sage. And yet through all these, the Holy Spirit is moving and speaking and saying to us the unsayable. We're told in Isaiah that God is higher than we are. His ways are higher than our ways, his thoughts and our thoughts, as high as the heavens are from the earth. So are his ways higher than our ways and his thoughts and our thoughts. And if you think about it, if you're trying to wrap your mind around the infinite, the eternal, being a completely spatio-temporal being, being totally finite, being totally bound by time, totally bound by space, good luck. 
You know, how are you, a tiny human being, going to wrap your mind around the whole of God? And so it takes God's revelation to bring us anywhere near to God. So when he is revealing himself to us, then we can start to have some teeny tiny intimation of the nature of God, of who God is, of how God acts towards us, of God's creation. But without that, we're, you know, we can't do it. And so the whole point of every word of scripture is the revelation of God. And for the early church, most of this was about the revelation of God in the person of Jesus Christ, in a veiled way in the Old Testament and in an unveiled way in the New. There's a really interesting book by St. Augustine of Hippo. And Augustine is the great mind of Western Christianity. He was the one who inspired Thomas Aquinas. He is the one who inspired Luther. Like Augustine is like the go-to guy for Christians in the West. And Augustine has this really interesting book called On the Literal Meaning of Genesis, in which he talks about the literal reading of Genesis. But the whole book is really about all of this deep pneumatic theological stuff in Genesis. So when he wants to get to the literal level, he's still just like, okay, here's the stuff. And now we're going to go deep and really talk about what is the origin of light and what does light mean and what is the true light and where does the true light come from and how does the light that we see relate to the true light of God? And in this, he actually says, if there's something in the text which to believe is committing yourself to an absurdity, then clearly that is something that is pushing you just to go to that pneumatic level, that spiritual level. And he says, if you think this means that we are dismissing the text and saying it's just allegory and that it's not important, then you're wrong. No Christian will dare say, he says, that the narrative must not be taken in a figurative sense. For St. Paul says, now all these things that happened to them were symbolic. And so St. Paul uses this spiritual sense of the text over and over again. If you want some examples of that, you could check out 1 Corinthians 10, 1 through 4, Galatians 4, 21 through 31, Colossians uh, 2, 16 through 17. These are passages in which Paul says things like, the rock which Moses struck in the desert, which gave water to the Israelites, was Christ. It was this prefiguration of Christ. They began to know Christ, they experienced Christ through the water flowing forth from this rock in the desert. This is how the early church understood the importance of the Old Testament. So, in the early church, science, Christianity, definitely not a problem. In fact, the early church would see Christ as the Logos, the Word of God, the infinite, eternal logic of the universe, the order by which all things were made, the, the rationale by which science actually functions. So, for the early church, truth is not something to be discovered. It's not something that is hidden away in a book somewhere. It's not something to be argued over. Truth is a person. Truth is Christ. He is the criterion of truth, and all truth flows from him. So, for the early church, the observations of the physical world and the record of scripture, these are not contrary things, but actually harmonious. And so, for the majority of modern Christians today, same deal. So, Darwin, not a problem. Evolution, not a problem. But what about all the other problems of science and Christianity? There's penicillin. Oh, no, we like penicillin. Well, they're, they're really safe, strong bridges. No, we actually like driving on those. Well, there's NASA. No, we like NASA. There aren't discrepancies between 
Christianity, and science. These are not two opposite worldviews in which you've got to pick one or the other. It's not the Bloods and the Crips. It's not the USA and the USSR in the 1980s. They are harmonious, and one can be both a scientist and love science and do science with integrity and a Christian, and that is not problematic. The problem comes when you start using only religion to do science. If you say, I'm going to ignore the physical world, I'm going to ignore all observation, and I'm going to make all my deductions about the physical world from like the book of Proverbs, which doesn't really get you very far because that's not what Proverbs was written to address. And maybe an even bigger problem comes when you try and do religion, when you try and understand God, when you try and receive God's revelation only through science. And this is because Science is made, it's designed to observe stuff within the creation. So it's designed to observe objects within the creation. But God is not an object within the creation. If God were Zeus, who lived on Olympus, who had a specific shape, who did certain things, who had a beard, if God were like a guy in the sky with a beard, then science could either discover him or discover his absence. But God is not a guy on a cloud with a beard. God is infinite. God is eternal. God is the ground of everything that is. God is infinitely beyond the creation and present to the creation at every point in time and space. So if you're using science, which is designed to observe objects in time and space, to try and observe an infinite eternal being who's infinitely beyond time and space, that is completely insane and pointless. So for a scientist to say, I believe with absolute certainty there is a God, that's not a scientific observation, that's a religious statement. And for a scientist to say, I believe with absolute certainty there is no God, that is not a scientific observation, that is a religious statement. You're sort of like somebody who's really good at catching frogs. And you go out at night with your flashlight and your pail to the pond and you have your waterproof clothing on and you start hunting for frogs and you're shining the flashlight around, you're looking for frogs. But then someone who you're with is like, hey, actually tonight we're not looking for frogs. We're looking for elementary particles. So just shine your flashlight around, get some water in your bucket and extract the neutrinos. Well, You're not going to be able to do that with a flashlight and a bucket and some waterproof boots. You're in the wrong ballgame. Like, you can't just go around hunting for neutrinos and isolate them with your frog hunting stuff. And to try and search for God, to try and understand God, to try and receive God's revelation through looking through a telescope or a pair of binoculars or microscope, good luck. It's never going to happen. So, the denial of God by a scientist the affirmation of God by a scientist, these are completely religious acts. These are acts of faith. These are expressions of their own faith perspective. They have nothing to do with science because science is not cut out to see infinite and eternal beings. End of story. So, Religion and science, when they are, when religion is actually doing religion, when Christianity is listening to the revelation of God, things go well. When science is actually doing science and observing the physical world, things go well. When science starts trying to do Christianity or Christianity starts trying to be science and replace science, you're kind of in a bizarro world. Lastly, what about miracles? Don't you have to eventually come down and say either I believe in miracles or I believe in science? Interestingly, Christianity's understanding of 
the miracle, doesn't really differ very much from science's understanding of the miracle. So from the perspective of science, a miracle, or maybe sometimes scientists would say the so-called miracle, uh, would be something that doesn't happen according to our expectations based on our observations of the world. So if you have um, sick people who routinely get sicker and sicker and die with the same disease, that's just the course that we would expect. If you have a sick person who's getting sicker and sicker and then meets Jesus on the street and Jesus touches that person and they are suddenly made whole, that is outside what we would expect. That is, that is not the norm according to our observations of how the world typically works. And so that's the case from the science perspective. That, that's not what we expected. And that's the case from the Christian perspective. That's not what we expected. In both cases, the aberrance from the seeming laws of the physical world is definitional to the idea of a miracle. So for the scientist, they might say, well, this thing happened and people observed it, but we can't explain it according to the way we think the world works. And to the Christian, they would say, this thing happened, and it's not what we expected, and we can't explain it according to the way the world normally works. However, for the Christian, they would say, this is clearly God stepping in to bring us all closer to loving him and loving our neighbors, which is the point of all the miracles. In neither case does someone say, oh yeah, that's how the world works, that's normal. It's not like magic where you believe that there are wizards who go around operating by a different set of scientific principles or a different set of scientific laws. Instead, a miracle is something wholly unexpected by anybody. So, ultimately, for the early church, for Christians, the majority of Christians today, religion, science, not a problem. For some people, still is. Some scientists, some fundamentalists, they don't get along, they don't see eye to eye, and we should all pray for one another. Next time, we will get back to the actual history of the early church. This involves some early church theology, but had a, a much bigger um, question to answer. But next time, we'll be back solidly in the early church. Thanks so much for spending some time with me.